Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're beginning a new book of the Torah. It's, it's, it's called uh, Sefer Shmos, the book of uh, Shmos, or uh, technically that would mean uh, names, but it also means um, the book of exile, but it's also the book of redemption, because while it's talking about how the Jews were slaves in Egypt, at the same time, really the the book is really about um, us getting out of Egypt and, and, and being saved from, from, from that slavery. And uh, for the first time in, you know, the, the Torah, the five books of Moshe, it, it's called Torah Moshe, the, the Torah of Moshe. But up until now, we haven't had Moshe yet. So now Moshe really, you know, we have the, the, the Torah begins with the book of uh, Breshis or, or Genesis. And now... Moshe, who's really the, the, the overwhelming figure of the Torah, enters for the first time. So that's, that's very meaningful. And, um, you know, one, one thing that, that you should know is that uh, everything that is in the Torah before Moshe comes, um, how, how do we have it exactly? In other words, how was the Torah constructed? What is our tradition? It's just a historical note, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a small thing, but it's a big thing at the same time. You see, the Torah was given to Moshe and to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. And it was given letter for letter. So every single letter was dictated from God to Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, now, everything that took place before Moshe's birth, so this is talking about when it says, that God created the heavens and the earth, the very opening of the, the Torah itself, and including all the chronicles of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, Yosef and his brothers, all those things, you may have thought, because probably you didn't think about it, you may have thought that these were all historically received traditions, that were passed down in the family to Moshe, right? And Moshe received them. And then when he was writing down the Torah, he also incorporated the received traditions that were handed down in the family up until that time. But that would be a mistake. That's not what happened. What happened was that when God gave the Torah to Moshe Rabbeinu, Hashem also provided all of the history of the family, not that they didn't know about it, in terms of just in the here and now, passing it down from parent to child, they knew about it. But the way that it's recorded, and all of the details, these were from Hashem to Moshe Rabbeinu. So in other words, it's, it, we have to understand that the entire Torah that we have, was give, including all the parts before Moshe was there, were given by God to Moshe at Mount Sinai. And that's, that's significant for a few reasons. One, that you should understand that the entirety of the five books is is from Hashem, uh, through Moshe. That's, that's, that's one, one important point, even before Moshe was born. But also that it gives you an extra degree of appreciation that the events that describe Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, that the point of view and the telling of those events, what's included, what's not included, the spellings of the various words, whether they include the letter Vav or not, whether they were completely spelled or or just little nuances in the spellings, that all of this was from the divine point of view. And not just sort of like, well, this is how I heard it, and this is what I thought happened. 
because everybody knows that if you have, you know, 20 people observe a traffic accident, you're going to get 20 different reports about what happened. So, so it's, it's, it's important for us to just re-appreciate the fact that when we're talking about these events before Moshe is born, that they're described from the point of view of God. So only God knows everything that's going on inside of a person, outside of a person, inside every other person who's participating in the event. So that recording is a very exact, precise recording. Okay, that's just a slight um, introduction um, to Sefer Shmos, just on a historical level and just understanding again the, just how, how the Torah itself was put together. Um, but let's, uh, let, let's go now deeper into what's going on exactly. So, so Moshe Rabbeinu is, 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 is called on to do the most amazing thing in the world, if you think about it. And, and I just want to take, sort of like, look at this event that we're, the Jews getting out of Egypt. Just let's look at it. It's all so familiar to us, but I had sort of like, for me anyway, a, a fresh perspective on it. And let's just take 10 steps back for a moment and, and look at it from this point of view, okay? And then we'll go deeper into it. But just again, to get an overview. Hashem asks Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe our teacher, to go to Egypt. And what is, what is Egypt at that point? Egypt is the greatest power in the world at that point, the most developed power, not only at that time, but thousands of years later, we're still talking about Egypt. It's one of the greatest civilizations that ever took place in the world. And it's at its height at this point, and it's got, you know, an army, a very great army. Also, if you want to get into it on a more mystical level, they were masters of black magic and things like this. So there's all sorts of things going on in terms of Egypt. Their architecture was, even to our day, we don't, we don't even know how they built the things. So that there are certain people who want to tell you that space aliens built the pyramids and things like that. Now, I don't think space aliens built the pyramids, frankly, but the point is, is that it perplexes modern day engineers so much that they have to say, oh, space aliens built it. It just tells you how advanced the culture was, that's all. So, so here you have one individual with a speech impediment. Okay, he can't, he can't speak clearly, whatever that means. He has some, some sort of speech defect, okay? Which, by the way, was healed at Mount Sinai. Because at, at Mount Sinai, anyone who had any illness whatsoever, everything was healed. Should know that. So that's a turning point in Moshe's life. But, um, but anyway, so it's not like he's a great orator or anything like that. So anyway, here's the point. One man is told without any army whatsoever, <laughs> without any speaking skills whatsoever, one man is told to face one of the greatest powers that's ever existed on earth and to take a million, more than a million people out of that power at its height. One man with no army. And what's the end of that story? He leaves with the people and that entire empire is decimated. 
Right? I mean, I have the chills just saying it. You know, just think about it from that point of view for a moment. One man with no army liberates an entire nation from the greatest power on earth, and when he's finished, that power is decimated. This is the story. Why do we keep on talking about the Jews leaving Egypt? Well, uh, that's a pretty good reason, isn't it? I mean, has there ever been a story like this ever? Never. Never before, never since. Nothing even comes close to this, actually. And we're told that this is the basis of all future redemptions. And that the great redemption will be even greater than this. It will be so much greater than this that we're not even going to talk about this anymore so much. That's how much greater it's going to be. That's still ahead of us. I mean, we think, oh, all the miracles are over, the splitting of the Red Sea, all this stuff, it's all gone, it's all in our distant past. We know, you know what's coming? Something amazing is coming. It must be pretty amazing if we're not going to be talking about this anymore. Um, so... Now that we have one level of kind of like perspective of the greatness of, of Moshe and what he accomplished, and I'm not even talking about going up into heaven to get the Torah. I mean, that's like, how do you top that? Oh, I know. How about going up into heaven and getting the Torah? How, how does that work? You know, so I mean, well, actually, heaven came down to earth. But that aside, I mean, he didn't eat for 40 days. And 40 nights, he didn't eat. He was basically absorbing divine light. I mean, you know, he was like, yeah, like almost like a photosynthesis. We, we have that in terms of plants, that plants can turn, you know, light into food, basically. So, you know, it says angels eat light. So, so you know, you, you have something just unprecedented in terms of Moshe. Um. But he's also the most humble person that, that, that ever lived. And I had, again, a perspective, just trying to get a kind of a more human take on, on Moshe Rabbeinu. Because the amazing thing is this was a human being. This was someone who was born from a, a mother and a father and was a human being. And he doesn't get into Israel because he, because he, he didn't do the job well enough. <laughs> However, we're supposed to understand that, right? So b before we myth uh, mythologize him, we, we have to go to the other you know, extreme and say that he was absolutely a human being and he didn't finish his job because he doesn't get into Israel on some level, right? However we're supposed to understand that. So, so anyway, but I, I, I had a perspective on his um, humility and I just want to share that again, just trying to take a fresh take on it, just to just try to absorb who this person was for a moment. So I'm going to talk about the, his whole encounter with the burning bush a little bit more in detail. But before we get to that, that the, the, the Gomorrah says, even though it, it seems pretty brief in the Torah itself, that, that um, the whole incident with the burning bush where Hashem speaks to Moshe and tells him to take the Jews out of Egypt, and Moshe refuses, that that actually t took place over a period of seven days. Seven days that Moshe was saying no. And what, what was going on there? Why was he saying no? It's because the way it was explained to me, and this meant a lot to me, was that Moshe was asking Hashem that this should be the final redemption. 
He was arguing, this, let this be the, the, the real thing, the Gula Shlema, let this be the, our entrance into the end of days. And, and that was accounting for the seven-year argumentation back and forth between Hashem and Moshe. But anyway, however we're to understand it, Moshe agrees to take on this job. And, um, and now there's this tiny little conversation recorded with him and Yisra. Okay, Yisra was his father-in-law. So that's his wife's father. And Yisra is a, an amazing uh, uh, person in his own right. But um, so let's just set the scene for a moment. Moshe has now spoken with God, communed with God for seven days. And by the way, where was the burning bush? Where was that just geographically? That was at Mount Sinai. There's a lot of people don't know that. That was at Mount Sinai, where he's going to return to to get the Torah. Okay, but right then at that point, it's just, you know, the far reaches of the desert. It's, it's, it's not really, it wasn't a, a known place at that point as a, as a famous place. Um, so, so Moshe has now been charged with one of the greatest jobs anyone's ever been charged with ever. Okay? And, um, and God has taken seven days to convince him. That's in itself is just mind-boggling. What does that mean to be in a conversation for seven days with God? So, so Moshe now is about to begin his job, and he has to excuse himself, ask for permission, because, I mean, that's amazing too, just, just to see what the Torah demands of a person in terms of what we call menschlichkeit, in terms of being a decent, moral, upright person, right? Moshe has to not just make his own terms and it's like, I'm the boss right now and I do whatever I want. He's asking his father-in-law permission to, to leave, right? Because he's been there taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. I mean, that in itself is, is amazing that you know, a lot of people would have been like, you know, I'm just going and see you. Where are you going? And, you know, I, I got a big job. So let's, let's look at, they record, the Torah records what he said to his father-in-law. So this is chapter 4, verse 18. Moshe went and returned to Yisro, his father-in-law, and said to him, now, listen to what is not being said here. This is why I'm, I'm, I'm reading this to you just for us to appreciate the depths of Moshe's humility and sneeskite, right? Quote, Let me go now back to my brethren who are in Egypt and see if they are still alive. And Yisro said to Moshe, go to peace. Did he say, God just spoke to me? Mm-hmm. Did he say, I've just been charged with this unbelievable, you wouldn't, I was in the desert and, and I saw this miracle and there's a bush and then, and then God, saw, and, and God wouldn't let me say, and God kept on talking, and this, who, who could do such a thing? Do you think I can do, no, just, you know, I just have to check in on my brothers and see if they're still alive. What kind of human being, Right? I mean, the modesty, the hiddenness. Who would, say, who 
would, who, who would say such a thing? This is um, an, a, a glimpse into his personality, which I think is like electrifying, really. So, so okay. So now I want to start to go a little bit deeper into the text itself. And, uh, um, you know, I... I'll just make one more general point before we go a little further in, okay? Because uh, Rashi brings something, and it's so, uh, it's such a contemporary thought, and it's such a helpful thought, you know? I always hope that that the things that we discuss in these talks are not just um, mind-expanding, hopefully they are that, but also things that we can use practically in our own lives in a very real way. So this is a very real tool. You know, officially the name of this series is called Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World, you know. So this is a, a, a spiritual tool right now. And um, Moshe goes um, and he confronts Paro and all the mechanics of this are, are just so fascinating. I, I don't know that we'll have time for it, but maybe, maybe we'll try to get a few in. And of course he... He runs up against a wall. Paro says no to him, and it's, it's very confounding to Moshe, very disappointing. The people themselves are, are crushed. They're, they're really on the lowest level at this point. You know, they're completely, like, completely overburdened, and, and, and they can't take another disappointment, and they put their trust in Moshe, and then they're disappointed again, because now they're told that they have to do even more work than they had to do before Moshe came. And the amount of work that they had to do before was absolutely crushing. Now they're told they have to do even more work. And, and it, it seems that Moshe is to blame for this. So what do you, how are they supposed to feel about their great redeemer, their great leader, who's now shown up and made everything worse? You know, there's a story about a few Hasidim um, sitting around and each one is talking about um, why his Rebbe is, is the greatest Rebbe, right? So one says that my Rebbe did this amazing thing, and the next one says my Rebbe did this amazing thing, and the third one talks about how my Rebbe told me to go into this business, and I lost all of my money, and now I'm bankrupt. <laughs> and they said, you know, why? And so what makes your Rebbe the best? He says, because I'm still a chassid. <laughs> After all that, you know? So he must be pretty good. <laughs> so, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu shows up and makes everything worse from their point of view. And, and this is really, this is, this is tough. So, in describing how, um, in describing how, uh, how, uh, how disconnected they were from Moshe, it says here that um, in uh, chapter 6, verse 9, it says, So Moshe spoke accordingly to the children of Israel, meaning that he tried to console them. He tried to give them strength when things were getting worse. And it says, but they didn't listen to Moshe. They wouldn't accept his, um, his words of consolation. Like, uh, they wouldn't allow themselves to be cheered up by him. 
It says here, because, why, why wouldn't they? It says, because of shortness of breath and hard work. So in Hebrew, that's mikotzer ruach, umeavoda kasha. So I wanted to key in on this word just as a practical tool, kotzer ruach. Ruach also means spirit. That's one of the dimensions. There are five parts to the soul. One of the parts of the soul is called the ruach. But, but it also means wind or it also means breath. So what does it mean, shortness of breath? So Rashi says something very interesting. He says, because, and, and I'm bringing this up because it's so contemporary. He says that when people get stressed out, they, they stop breathing deeply. <laughs> you know? You know, I, one of the best advice, pieces of advice that you can give anyone, including yourself, is don't forget to breathe. Because somehow when stress comes, you just cut off your breathing. And when you stop breathing deeply, you become more and more stressed out. One of the greatest tools that you can do is to remember to breathe. Because there's all sorts of, I'm not a doctor, but there are all sorts of amazing things that happen when you keep breathing regularly. All sorts of wonderful things that happen to the mind. And so, so, so we see that they, they stopped, they were so stressed out that they stopped breathing deeply that they weren't able to hear Moshe trying to console them, which means that there's a direct correlation here between breathing deeply and being able to receive good news. Isn't that interesting? Because it opens up your mind to be able to be Consult. So if you find yourself in a place where you, um, you know, just are really blocked, make sure that you're breathing. And if you, and and the best way to, um, see, the problem is, is that when you're already in a place where you feel very blocked, your mind is so constricted, it's hard to remember any, any spiritual idea, any, any healing tool. So what you have to do is you have to say to yourself, oh, I'm entering into this business meeting, which is a stressful meeting, or I'm entering into this family discussion, which is a stressful discussion. Before you go into it, before your mind gets blocked, that's when you have to remind yourself to breathe. Before you go into it. Do you understand? And then, and then you'll be able to, to use it. Because when you need it the most, usually is the time when you can't remember Right? So beforehand. Okay? Okay. Good. So now, I want to get into, um, into this idea. It's a very deep idea, and, and I really want to talk about two things right now, which is, um, which is on a more mystical level what the Jewish people were doing in terms of the uh, Egyptian servitude, what, what, what we were trying to fix exactly, and but also to talk about how the great redemption is going to come. And in terms of understanding on a deeper level, what happened with Moshe Rabbeinu and the burning bush? Because there's, um, there's uh, something that takes place there. So I wanna talk, talk about both of these things. So maybe, maybe I can just give as an introduction something a little bit more on the mystical level, and then I wanna get a little bit more into the, 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 the practical thing. So, so the idea is 
that we wanted to, we went into Egypt to raise up these fallen sparks. And um, this is a very Kabbalistic idea that goes back to the creation of the world itself. That when Hashem was putting his light into this world to create the world itself, there were these vessels. And these vessels were all individual. And these are, this is, by the way, this is all metaphysical. So don't think that there was some kind of like pot in the sky, hmm. right? That light was going into. The Chachamim, our sages, give us these visualizations, but we can't take them literally. They're just trying to communicate to us something so that our mind can hold it. Okay, but when we are talking about very, very esoteric things, our sages have to put it into some kind of language, but you can't take it too literally because then you're not understanding what they're saying. Okay? So, ironically, to understand what they're saying, you have to also understand that they're not saying that. <laughs> um, so, so, anyway, there were these vessels, so to speak, metaphorically, whatever that means. There were these vessels, and Hashem put this intense light in them. Remember, Hashem condensed His light, and from this condensed light of Hashem, He created the physical universe. And of course, Hashem exists dimensions beyond that. So this is just sort of his outer light, this outer garment of light, so to speak. Okay? So, so Hashem exists way beyond, but he takes this aspect of this light that exists, you know, this surrounding light of his, and he condenses it into the physical universe. Okay. But there's an initial stage where that light goes into these vessels. And the vessels weren't strong enough to hold the light. So you have something that's called the shattering of the vessels. And when the vessels shattered, all these sparks, what we call sparks, came down. And this is an aspect of the exile. And a lot of our job, again, this is the most mystical understanding of what, 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 what the fixing of this world is, is to elevate these sparks. So another way of understanding it, let me just tell you one thing. So then how, did, how were there ever vessels which held the light? So then the vessels came together because initially they were individual vessels. Now they all became linked. And when they were able to share the light with each other, then all of a sudden the vessels were able to contain the light. So if you ever look at the, um, these charts, they have charts of the spherot, these Kabbalistic charts, you'll always see that the different spherot are connected to each other. There are always lines connecting the spherot. That is the new improved vessels. Those were the vessels that were actually able to hold the light. And again, there's a very, very basic teaching there that if a burden is too hard for you, if you are able to share it with someone else, then you're able to withstand the pressure of it. So everyone needs people in their world, in their life, who they can share their problems with. Because otherwise, a person can be crushed by their own problems. And one of the um, tricks of the Yetzirah, of the negative inclination, 
is that when a person has problems, the Yetzirah whispers in that person's ear, this is so humiliating. You're the only person who's going through this. You're the only one. And you can't tell anyone else because it's so disgusting. It's only you who's been afflicted with this. And it's a lie. There are millions of people going through the same thing. And I don't care. You write down the weirdest thing in the world on a piece of paper, and I guarantee you, there are millions of people going through that same thing. I'm talking about weird, weird stuff. Okay? So, so, so this is just a lie. And then when all of a sudden you realize, oh, he's going through it and she's going through it, and this one's taking this medication and the other one's taking the same medication. Now that I know, I, don't, I actually don't know people who aren't taking that medication, you know? So it's like, it's like you have to be able to, to, to share with other people. You have to. And then you feel better. Okay. So another way of understanding this, this idea, it's a, it's a different way of looking at it, but it's the same general idea, is that these fallen sparks, right? By the way, the Kabbalists learn out, and we won't go into the, the details, but that there were 288 of them, initially anyway. Okay, It's just an interesting number to keep in mind. Um, so, but another way of understanding it from a different, um, a different paradigm. But again, you see, you see, when you when you learn Torah more intensely, like people who uh, don't uh, don't know how to learn, basically. I mean, to put it nicely, is that they see contradictions in texts. And they go, well, this text said this, and that text said that. But, uh, so why should I believe either of the things? But they don't understand what's going on. They don't understand how to learn. That basically, there are different paradigms, meaning there are different, um, different uh, methodologies, and that each methodology has its own in- in integrity. And each methodology is approaching it and trying to explain it in a different way. And so... So when it looks like there's a contradiction in the text, there's not a contradiction in the text, if they're true texts. But rather, they're different paradigms, trying to explain the phenomena in different ways. So you have to work within the paradigm. And then once you understand the language of the paradigm, then you're able to reconcile the thing and actually connect the two things and have them each work with each other and you enhance your understanding instead of seeing on a very superficial level a contradiction in dismissing it. Okay? Just, just to be aware of this. Okay? So now, a different paradigm of understanding the fallen sparks is to understand them as fallen letters. Alright? So, so the Jews had to lift up the fallen letters. Okay? Now, where do we get the idea of the letters? Because we know, mystically speaking, that Hashem created the world out of the Hebrew letters. And again, it's always important to point out that doesn't mean that he took, you know, an aleph and a base and hammered them together and made hot dogs, right? That's not, that's not what we're talking about. We're saying that on a deeper level, that all of the different letters represent different energy wavelengths. And that God shaped these energies into the world itself, into the universe itself. Okay. So, so there's certain 
there's certain things, and we call them letters, that these letters have fallen, and that the letters have to be lifted up. Now, with that in mind, listen to this. An amazing thing that the Jikover Rebbe, the Imre Noam, points out. He says that the word, it says that God is going to take us out with wonders, miracles, uh, out of Egypt, and, and in the ultimate redemption as well. This word is called niflaot. That, that means wonders, niflaot. But the Jikover points out that niflaot is actually two words. If you, you can make that one word into two words. Nofel os, which means the fallen letters. So, so that when we, when we experience these wonders, these wonders, these, these miracles of redemption are going to happen when we uplift these fallen letters. And it says that God took us out of Egypt with signs and wonders. The word for a sign is an os. And os also means letters. That we, that we left Egypt with these signs, with these os, with these letters. Again, that means that we lifted up the fallen letters. Now listen to this. I was just kind of meditating on the word shmos, which is, again, the, the, this, the, the, the book that we're talking about. You know, Shmos means names. How do you make names? With letters, right? But shmos is also the gematria, Moshe, Aleph, Tuf, meaning Moshe is coming to uplift all the letters from Aleph through Tuf. That's the first letter and the last letter of the, of the Aleph base. That's the gematria. Shmos is Moshe, Aleph, Tuf. Again, this, uh, this idea that, that, that we're lifting up all of the letters, right? So how do you lift up the letters? So I was trying to think of like, what does that mean exactly? Because it's, it sounds, it seems very, very esoteric. So, so I'd like to try to explain it in the following way. Which is that when Adam Harishon was charged by God, commanded by God to name the animals, right? The way it's explained is that, again, this is before we ate from the tree of knowledge, the Eitz Hadas. So there was no imperfection really no sin in the world. And so as a result, everything was crystal clear. And that Adam Arishan was able to look into an animal and to see the letters that they were created with. And then he would read the letters that they were created with and he'd know what the name of the animal was. So for instance, if you just think of a tree, like he would able, be able to see the ayin energy and the tzadi energy. Remember, a tree is eights. So he'd be able to say, oh, that's a tree. He'd be able to read the energies within something and then name it. So in other words, in a place where, where there's purity, then you can actually see the letters. Okay? So what does it mean then to uplift the letters? So, you see, it says that the call from Mount Sinai, the voice of God from Mount Sinai has never stopped. That's what we're told. But then the question is, why can't you hear it? If, if, if it never stopped, why can't I hear it? And so I heard Reb Shlomo say in the name of Reb Nachman of Breslov that, you know what makes the loudest noise in the entire world? Anger. That there's so much anger in the world that it's blocking out this sound. 
that really a person, and I always remember that he said this because it always seems so, um, such an interesting example, that a person should be able to hear the sound of monkeys in China. But because of all of the anger in the world, it's blocking out our ability really to hear. Even to be able to hear the voice of our own souls, unfortunately. And certainly to be able to hear each other. And so, so the energy in this world is absolutely confused. And what halacha allows us to do, what the mitzvahs of the Torah allows us to do, is to harmonize the energy in the world. To be able to bring back clarity into the world. To be able to um, sort out all these competing things and then just see things for what they are. When you're able to see things for what they are, then all of a sudden I know who you are and you know who I am. In other words, the letters become uplifted because there's clarity in the universe. So, so Sefer Shmos, interestingly, begins with these words. We're still on the same topic. Ve'ele Shmos b'nei Yisrael habayim. Okay? Now, Rebbe Nachman points out, if you take those last letters of the first one, two, three, four, five um, words of the, uh, of the book, right? That the last five letters spell out the word Tehillim, which means prayer, right? Tehillim is the book of Psalms. It's, it's prayer. Now, the Jigover then points out, if you take the next set of words, continuing to read, Mitzrayma es Yaakov ish ubeso, if you take the last letters of that next set of words, it spells out the, it spells out the word tshuva. Tshuva means to return, right? To, to, to elevate yourself and to clarify your own energies. You see, a lot of people think that Tshuva means to repent, right? That means that you want to make me into someone else. Like, why do you, why do you keep trying to change me? I, I don't get away from me. Like, why? I, I like me. Don't, don't try to change me. Right? But that's not what tshuva is. Tshuva means that a person is returning to their true selves, to who they really are. You see... Our rabbis teach that God made a contract with the Red Sea and that the, from the beginning of creation, the Red Sea was programmed to open and split for the Jewish people when they got there. So we see that the Red Sea didn't split for the Jewish people when they got there at first. And so the rabbis explain that the Red Sea didn't recognize the Jews because we had fallen to such a low place that we didn't look like the way we were supposed to look like. You see, when a person is in a fallen state and they haven't done tshuva, they, they haven't returned to who they really are. And by the way, tshuva is a lifelong process. One never stops doing tshuva, right? Because tshuva is, is to be understood not just with make, make, fixing past mistakes, but striving to ever greater levels of purity and holiness. That's also a form of tshuva. 
Because who, what does it mean to return to who you are? There's no ceiling on who we can be. So a person can get to the place where they can't even recognize themselves. The Red Sea didn't recognize us. You see, I think that this is, on a mystical level, one of the problems with people who are looking for husbands and wives. That they, you, we, we say that your husband or your wife is the other side of you. Right? It's the other half of your soul. But sometimes we have been in exile so long that we don't even recognize ourselves. How, how can I recognize my other half? If I don't know who I am, how can I know who you are? So again, how does all of this get fixed? All of this gets fixed when we, when we elevate the letters within ourselves, when we clarify the letters within ourselves, when we put ourselves in harmony. When we're in harmony, then all of a sudden the energies surrounding us also get closer to being harmony, and there's more clarity. When there's more clarity, there's less exile, and there's more redemption, because people understand what it is that we're supposed to do. I understand what I'm supposed to do. I understand who I am and what I am and what I need. So this is my understanding anyway. Of, of, of what it means to uplift the letters, the fallen letters, niflaot, nofel os, that this is the wonders that take place. This is why Sefer Shmos begins with, in an encrypted way, but begins with a reference to Tehillim, to Psalms, and to Tshuva. Because the idea of prayer and the idea of, of, of raising myself up will clarify the energies in myself and in this world, and then the light of redemption will shine through. Remember, something very important, and we will conclude this part with this thought, and hopefully this will make it more clear if it's not clear yet. You see, there's kind of a, two ways of looking at it. If I want to make a blessing on, say, a, a cup of coffee or an apple or something like this, right? One is, is that this apple wasn't holy, and then I say a blessing on it, and all of a sudden I made the apple holy. And that's what I've done. I've, I've, ra- I've raised the, the, uh, the apple up. It used to be just an apple, now it's really something like has kedusha to it, right? Okay. That's one way of looking at it. But I think a deeper way of looking at it is to understand that God fills the entire world. And he fills the apple as well. Right? An aspect of godliness, certainly. You know, again, God exists dimensions beyond the world. But nonetheless, he fills this world. Which means this apple is already holy. So then what am I doing when I'm making a blessing over it? Am I making it holier? So I would say, no, what, what's, what's happening is you're exposing and revealing the holiness that's there. Because God already inhabits the entire world. So what are we trying to do with the mitzvot? We are trying to reveal God's presence, which is here right now. So this is the idea of clarifying the energy, is that what we're trying to do is rid ourselves of the anger, rid ourselves of all the other competing instincts, which are burying things and confusing things and shrouding things. And by getting ourselves into a place of harmony, all of a sudden we're revealing all the godliness that's there. This is, this is redemption. This is redemption. 
Okay, so now how is this going to happen? So now I want to go into the next section here. But it's all linked together. How is this going to happen? How, how are we going to do this? And um, how are we going to bring Mashiach? And it seems like, well, that's a big job, right? Or maybe, maybe it's an impossible job. And yet the Gomorrah says that um, Eliyahu Hanavi came to one of the sages in the Gomorrah. This is in the beginning of Gomorrah Bruchas. And um, said basically, um, he asked him, when's Mashiach coming? And he says, it can come today, any day. Any day it can come. So now you're telling me, first I think it's impossible that it's going to come. Now you're telling me that every single day it can come? Any, that it can happen so quickly? And we're told that it will happen like in the blink of an eye. So how does that work? How does it happen so fast when it looks like the, the world is in such a state of advanced exile? Right? Okay, so I'm going to talk about how it can happen really fast. How, how we can do it, okay? And, um, and I think it all is being pointed to uh, with, um, with uh, Moshe Rabbeinu and, and how he finds the, uh, the burning bush. Okay, so listen to the way the Torah describes it. So it says, this is now uh, chapter 3. And, um, and uh, it says at the beginning that, that Moshe was shepherding the sheep of Yisrael. And it says that they were at the end of the desert, which is, I think, a very evocative phrase. Acher Hamidbar. Now, you know, exile is compared to a desert. So it's interesting that he was at the end of the desert, right? Where he see, and now he's standing at Mount Sinai. But Mount Sinai isn't Mount Sinai yet, right? But it's Mount Sinai. Can you imagine? He's just wandering, and there he is at Mount Sinai, but he doesn't even know the full impact of where he's standing yet. And there he sees this bush. Now remember, a bush is, what is a bush has two main components. It's wood and it's leaves. So you have wood and leaves. Both of them are very flammable, right? inside fire. Like there's this whole like fire that's surrounding leaves and wood and the wood isn't burning and the leaves aren't burning. So you can imagine that's like a really dramatic that's really dramatic and you're looking at it and you're waiting for it to burn it's not burning. So you want to hear something really far out? The rabbis teach that other people had seen it and they walked right by it. <laughs> All right? That's interesting. That's interesting. And in a related teaching, they say that when Hashem said, Lech Lecha, the command for Avraham to go to Israel, that other people heard it too. But only Avraham listened. So, so it says that um, Moshe thought, I will turn aside now and look at this great sight. 
Why will the bush not be burned? And then it says, so, so, so then it says, Hashem saw that he turned aside to see. And God called out to him from amid the bush and said, Moshe, Moshe, and he replied, here I am. So the Torah, Hashem himself takes note of the fact that Moshe took note. <laughs> Hashem saw that he turned aside to see. That was a big deal. And then, only then, after he turned to investigate, then Hashem called out to him. So the big, obvious question is, what if Moshe hadn't turned to see? What if he just walked by like other people had walked by? So apparently it wasn't so amazing. <laughs> because if it was so amazing on some level, how could anyone just walk by? It was just interesting enough. You know, it says, I learned from Rabbi Sichon, Rabbi Chaim Sichon, that God is as concealed in this dimension as he can possibly be, where if you look for him, he can still be found. Say that one more time. God is as concealed in this dimension as he can possibly be. But if you look for him, he can still be found. So in other words, one more degree of concealment, he wouldn't be able to be found even if you looked for him. And of course, the word for olam, which means world in Hebrew, is the root elam, ayin lamid mem, which means hidden. Because God is hidden in this world. So, so Moshe Rabbeinu turns and he goes. Now what if Moshe Rabbeinu had walked on? Maybe the Jews never would have gotten out of Egypt. Maybe the Torah wouldn't have been given at Mount Sinai. Or who knows what the timeline for civilization would have been. Okay, maybe the Jews would have been taken out of Egypt, but how? And it would have been a whole different story, maybe. Like, in other words, the point is this. All of history turns on a man alone in the desert turning to investigate a, a wonder. All of history, all of destiny turns on an individual alone in the desert turning to see something interesting. So I just wanted to link it to one other thing to show you that this is normal, that this is actually how God runs the world. Because we've learned previously, and I wish I could tell you in whose, teach, whose name this teaching is because I love it so much, that Yosef was in charge of the prison. So he, and was a prisoner himself. So this is a, a, a prison in ancient Egypt. It must have been a horrendous place to be. And he sees two people and they have sad looks on their face. Now you have to imagine probably everyone looked depressed. Has to be that everyone was miserable there. But he notices that these people were somehow more miserable than ordinary, ordinary. And he goes up to them and he says, is everything okay? Now, what happens from that? 
they say these were our, we had a bad dream and it's bothering us. He interprets their dream. Then he gets a reputation for being a dream interpreter. Then Paro has a dream that no one in the kingdom, his great advisors, can figure out. Word gets to him that there's this slave from the hated Jewish people who's in prison, who knows how to interpret dreams. He interprets Paro's dream, and the next thing you know, Paro says, okay, you run the kingdom. And Yosef then saves the world from starvation. There's a world today because Yosef noticed that two people were unhappy. Do you see this parallel between Yosef turning and seeing two people who he felt were unhappy and investigating, and Moshe Rabbeinu turning and seeing something that looked strange and going to investigate, and in both instances, the entire destiny of the world is changed. The world is saved. We get the Torah through Moshe because he turned. What would the world be like? You, you want to know how powerful the Torah is? Three words from the Torah. V'yahavta l'reach kamocha. Love your neighbor like yourself. Three words. Can you imagine how powerful the Torah is? What those three words have done to humanity, to human civilization. Three words. And along with all the other things. How the world changes. So I find this a very empowering thought because all of us have to understand in our own lives you have no idea what you're transacting when you pay attention to someone or when you pay attention to something. You know, one thing that I learned and, and uh, it made such an impression, I, I've been doing it for, for years and years and years and years and years and years and years. It says that when you make Kiddush Friday night, during that time you're supposed to look into the candles because it cures one five hundredth of your vision, okay, of blindness. So how do we understand that? That sounds very far out, right? But if you think about it, it's, it's not far out at all. People are hurting so much during the week that they stop seeing things around them. They stop seeing people who are upset around them. They stop, you know the phrase, stop and smell the roses. You can walk by beautiful flowers and like just walk by them like, well, wait a second. Can you imagine just walking by the Mona Lisa? Like you don't even look at it. But we're doing this constantly. And this is whether a person anatomically is blind or not. There's another condition of blindness. If you can't see things around you, that's called blindness. Right? So you say, well, I can see it. But are you seeing it? You're not seeing it. And we condition ourselves to this and we become blind to the world. So on Shabbos, what's Shabbos all about? Shabbos, we can rest. Shabbos, we can see things. Shabbos, we appreciate what it is that God has given us. So then our vision comes back. So this is the idea that during Kiddush, when you're proclaiming the fact that God created the world and that, and that this is our day of rest, you look into the Shabbos candle and, 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 and that light 
that light of creation comes back inside of you and it opens up your eyes to what's there again. So, so there's a bit of language here um, that I just try to try to like to explain this on a on a on a, on a slightly deeper level. Um, because um, Rashi has a problem with it, and I, I want to propose a solution. You see, it says here that Moshe thought, Moshe's looking at, he says, he saw and behold, the bush was burning in the fire, and the bush was not being consumed. So what does that mean? That means he was looking at it, right? Now in the next phrase, Moshe thought, I will turn aside now and look at this great sight. But wait a second, wasn't he just looking at it? The, 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 the last few words just said he's looking at it. Then it says, I will turn aside and look at this great sight. But it, and, and Rashi points to that. He said, what are you talking about? He was just looking at it. Now, the, the verb to, to turn aside that the, um, that the Torah uses um, is, uh, sorry, let me just uh, find it here. It, it comes from, uh, it's Samech and Reish. I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to locate it here. Uh, yeah. Asura, right? So he's going to, he's going to, he's going to look at it. Now, now this, this comes from, we, we have this same phrase here. It says, Sur meira va'asetov. Turn from evil and do good. That's in the Tehillim. So this idea of turning is not just the idea of turning your head. It's the idea of getting deeper by leaving the past behind. Like David Amelik says, Sur Meira, leave the bad. Right? So in other words, it's a changing of your actions, a changing of your life. Now I'm not saying that Moshe Rabbeinu, God forbid, had anything to fix. I'm not talking about that, but I'm, I'm talking on a deeper level right now. How do you begin to see things? And now we're getting to this idea of how we can bring Mashiach, okay? Moshe Rabbeinu, I want to say, was saying this idea of turn from evil, turn from, turn from where I was or who I was a moment ago, and let me actually investigate the depths of reality. I was seeing the world on one level before this, but now let me soar. Let me now turn. Let me turn aside from who I was a moment ago, seeing reality on only one level, and now let me turn, not turn my head because he was already looking, now let me turn and become a new person, leave my past behind in the way I used to look at things, and now look at things in a much deeper way. Remember, I'll tell you these words that I heard from Reb Shlomo. He says that in today's day and age, it's a criminal act to be superficial. It's a criminal act to be superficial today. So, so now this is the idea. And remember, this is the beginning of the redemption because this is when God tells Moshe to take the Jews out of Egypt and everything changes. And the greatest miracles are going to be revealed because the ten plagues 
and the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, the greatest miracles in history are about to be revealed, but it was all based on Moshe noticing, relatively speaking, a small miracle. But that small miracle now becomes the entryway through God brings giant, huge miracles into the world. This is an opening of consciousness that's taking place right now. And, and what is it? Just turning, he turned his head slightly. He deepened slightly. Okay. I'm not communicating yet, but I will. And then we'll begin to wrap it up. The point is this. The entire world is miracles. Everything is a miracle. Every single thing is a miracle. And by the way, you can't hear this put in a, in, 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 in a way that's stronger than the Ramban says it himself. The Ramban says that any person who says that everything is not a miracle has no share in the Torah of Moses. Can you imagine? According to our tradition, if your mother is Jewish, you're Jewish. Or if you had a kosher Orthodox conversion, you're Jewish. Okay? And yet he's saying that if a person doesn't understand that every single thing is a miracle, that they have no share in the Torah of Moshe. Meaning to say, you might be Jewish, but your thinking is absolutely not Jewish. You might be 100% Jewish, but the way you think, it's not Jewish at all. You don't have any connection to the Torah of Moshe if you don't understand that every single thing that happens is a miracle. Now, what does the Rambam say? What does Maimonides say? He says that nature is a miracle that you've grown used to. In other words, we say, well, that's, that's nature. That's the natural order. That's not a miracle. No, that's just a miracle that you got used to. Do you think, without going into too much detail, do you think that it's normal that a tree makes fruit? Like, I always think of the example. If you put your pencil on a table and then walked to the sink and then came back and there were oranges hanging off your pencil, <laughs> would you not be amazed? Is a tree any different? What is a tree? It's a piece of wood. And fruit come off of a piece of wood. How did the fruit, a juicy, wet thing, come off of a dry piece of wood? What sense does that make? But God plays tricks on us. Because what he does is he makes these things happen very slowly. So because they happen slowly, we think that they're normal. No, they're miraculous. Everything is miraculous. So this is the shift of consciousness that I'm talking about that all of humanity is going to take. We're going to begin, and science, which many people think is the enemy of religion, and that's ridiculous because all science is doing is telling you how God runs the world. That's all science is doing. So you say, well, there's a contradiction between this and that. The contradictions will be resolved. Don't, you don't have to give yourself headaches over it, okay? You know, I, one of my favorite stories, um, when, the, 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 when the last Lubavitcher Rebbe was um, still alive, on Olav Shalom Zecher Tzadach Levrochem, they were singing in, in 770, on Shabbos they were singing, We want Mashiach now. You know, and they were all singing this. And someone came up to the Rebbe and they said, it's known that Mashiach is not going to come on Shabbos. And everyone's singing, it's Shabbos here, everyone's singing, we want Mashiach now. 
And so the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe said, let Mashiach come, and then he'll explain how he came on Shabbos. <laughs> right? Like, what? You know, there's something called don't put the cart before the horse. Like, what do we care? We want Mashiach. Let Mashiach come. You know, so, so, so science disagrees on some points with religion. God created the world and he created science. I mean, what's the problem? There's no problem. Okay, so there's a question here, there's a question there. Big deal. Big deal. And believe me, I mean, I went to a fancy college. I'm not approaching this from an anti-intellectual standpoint. But let's recognize the big things for what they are and the smaller things for what they are. So, so anyway, there's going to be this shift in consciousness. And actually, science is playing one of the greatest roles right now in terms of alerting us to the absolute miraculousness of everything that's going on around us. So that the secular or the world's mindset is actually moving closer and closer to understanding that everything is a miracle. We're getting to this place. Now, I'll tell you something. It, 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 it wasn't, you know, it's funny, it wasn't that widely reported on. Uh, and I don't really even hear people talking about it much at all. But a very interesting event happened in the Jewish world. Uh, I think it was a couple of years ago now. You see, Rebbe Nachman of Breslov, and I don't know that anyone says that this wasn't true. So I think we can accept it as a true story. Um, wrote something called Megillus Nister, which means basically the secret scroll. And he wrote it in code. Okay? And he only gave, it was handed down to like the top, top few inner, inner, inner circle of the leaders of the Breslover movement. Breslover Hasidus, only a few people in each generation got access to it and were able to look at it. What, what, I, what I love about that, by the way, is that, is that you know, that means there's, you know, there's a, uh, a, a dictum in, in espionage, which is that if you find one thing, that means that there are other things that you haven't found that are similar to it. So just the very fact that we know about this and it was kept secret as long as it was kept, that means there are probably other things in the Torah world that are still around. Like we know, for instance... The Ark of the Covenant, the Golden Ark, where we put the Luchos, it, it's, it's somewhere. It's, it's hidden. Many of the Kalim of the Beis Amikdash, they're here. They don't have to be made. They're here. You, if you had access to it, you could walk to it right now. If you knew where it was. It's here. They're here. We just don't know where they are. Because they were hidden by one of the kings of Israel, because he knew that the temple was going to be destroyed, so he hid them. But they're, they're here. Okay, so what is this Megillus Nister? The, the code was broken like a couple of years ago. And it explains Rebbe Nachman had a vision while riding in a carriage of how Mashiach was going to come. And I'm sharing this with you because it's so logical. And whether it happens this way or whether it doesn't happen this way, 
It doesn't matter. That's not my point. My point is not to tell you this is how it's going to happen. That's absolutely not my point. But I'm telling you what was recorded by Rabbi Nachman when he had this vision. Because you can see how Mashiach can come in just like a very, very short period of time. Okay? In a, very, in a way that makes total, natural, perfect sense. All right. He says that, he actually said that Mashiach was going to be like a teenager. Right? Which I think is very interesting, that in itself, you know? And that it will be a man, and that he will be an amazing healer. And that he's going to go around healing people. And everyone, like, imagine, like, you know, the President of the United States' child is sick. God forbid. Don't wish it on them at all. But I'm saying, I'm just trying to give examples of great world leaders. Or even in the Arab world would probably be a very uh, a better example. People who are anti-Israel or, or whatever it is, that if they were to have a sick child or something like this. And again, I'm not wishing illness on anyone. But, but, um, but, but this person comes and he puts his hands on the person and all of a sudden they go from, they were dying, all of a sudden they're 100% healthy. And he's going from person to person like this. All of a sudden, the entire world, especially in the age of the internet, can you imagine where everything is reported like to the second? All of a sudden, they're like, "This is the re- this is it. It's this is what it, since he's obviously healing everyone, and it's a not a joke, and these are miracles that are happening in front of our face. Clearly, whoever this person is is the emissary of God, and the entire world will unite around this person." And he will be the Mashiach. And he will usher in the next era of humanity. But what I love about this idea is, to me, you just understand how effortless, how effortless this transition into this consciousness and everyone rallying around this person is. You know, all of a sudden they just understand there is a single truth. There is a real truth to the world. And this is the truth. This is the emissary of this truth. So, so what does it mean for all of us? Just to turn our heads slightly. <laughs> slightly. Just to deepen slightly. Right? This idea, this root of sur, samach resh, right? To turn, from, to turn from whatever we thought was really, oh, this is real. And just going a little bit deeper and understanding just a little bit more deeply and appreciating a little bit more deeply that every interaction we have is miraculous. That every person we encounter, it's miraculous. That everything that happens to me, it's miraculous. And then when we understand that God is communicating to me constantly in, in, with everything that's happening around me, then then all of a sudden we're going to open up and we're going to be able to clarify all of the energies of this world and uplift, right, all of the fallen letters and really to be able to see wonders. Okay. Yeah.